Good morning. How is everyone? Came across a scripture this morning that says, mask and you shall receive. Doesn't really say that and I'm happy about that. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be in Genesis 44 and 45. So uh, you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read just a couple of verses out of there, actually probably about 10. Uh, kind of little running start at it in verse 23 of chapter 42. And then a couple in 43, a couple in 44, and a couple in 45. And then I'll pray and we'll get into it. So in Genesis 42, again, we're, we're backtracking a little bit, verse 23. This is their, their brother's first time when they go down to Egypt. It says, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through, a, through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. Now in verse uh, 29 of chapter 43, from last, our last study. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Notice verse 30. This is Joseph. His heart yearned for his brother. <laughs> so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into this chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So Joseph is not quite ready for this revelation we'll see uh, today. And now in chapter 44. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now in verse, chapter 45, in verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him, while Joseph made himself known to his brother. He'd been yearning to do that. You just get that, that sense. And verse 2 again, and he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then he, verse 14, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Verse 15, moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So, Lord, we thank you again for this marvelous, marvelous story. But more than a story, Lord, it's, it's what really happened. Joseph and his brothers and all that you were working to bring Jesus into this world that we might be saved. And all these pictures that we see in the Bible that reiterate again your great love for us and your desire to reconcile us and redeem us and all the things that come along that came through Jesus. So we love you, Lord. We pray your blessing over the time we have in the word. Give us ears to hear. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So please, Lord, the things I prepared Break them fresh now that we, might, that we might be fed. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. So the whole story is, is so human, and I'll hit this. I've hit it a couple times already. It almost doesn't need any commentary. It's so profound and so written. So we, re, we, we get to relate to it. We get to feel it. We get to empathize. But it pictures many different things that we want to talk about today. So 
One of the things that came to mind was in John chapter 16 and verse 20, where Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So after Jesus was hideously crucified and murdered, his disciples were left stunned and shocked. Their hopes were shattered. But then Jesus showed up alive. What a great thing. He kind of popped in and out a little bit after he had shown himself, but he, he pulled up alongside a couple of guys going on the road to Emmaus, and he just began to reveal himself to his disciples. And so like Joseph's brothers, the disciples were shocked which is another testimony today, did not expect this to actually happen. It wasn't some hoax. It actually really happened. Would you say amen? He died on the cross. They buried him. He was dead three days, and he rose again from the dead, which is our hope. And so Jesus is alive, like he said, and in this case, Joseph is alive. So this is, the, the title is, this is just too good to be true. And it is true. Not but, and it is true. It's too good to be true, and it's true. So, oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This revelation of, of uh, Joseph to his brothers, it's like a resurrection. He's alive. Now, because Joseph's life is such a powerful and prophetic picture of the person and work of Jesus, a type of him who was to come, and because the account, as I already said, as it's preserved for us in God's word, hardly needs commentary, I decided to, at some point in this series, define some biblical terms that are pictured in the unfolding drama of Joseph's life, truths that all point to Jesus Christ, that we will love him who is the truth, the fulfillment of all God has promised. Do you love the truth? You know, God said he's going to send a strong delusion because they did not love the truth in the end days. This is revealed in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. And friends, there is only one gospel. It's the gift of God for the salvation of our souls through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's just too good to be true. And it is true. So, listen, we dare not mess around with God's word. Now, what I want to share a little bit this morning is what's not good is that some are in the church. They're messing around with truth. They're messing around with God's infallible word. They're messing around with the gospel. So I share the following in case you are not aware of one thing among many, but there's so many things that have surfaced through this whole epidemic we're going through. The following thing, if you're not aware of what's called progressive Christianity, I want to quote from Elisa Childers, whose new book called Another Gospel. Quote, at first, progressive Christianity was a, a hodgepodge of beliefs. The leading voices in the movement were in various stages of deconstruction and 
reconstruction. Some still believed in a physical resurrection of Christ, but were questioning the atonement. Others were still orthodox in their view of the atonement, but were changing their minds on issues like homosexuality and abortion. Still others were more radical in their denials of certain essential doctrines, hoping to completely reframe Christianity for the postmodern world. But what united them all was a willingness to question the things historic Christians had believed and put their hope in for 2,000 years. She goes on, quote, as I've learned progressive Christianity is not, as I've learned, progressive Christianity is not simply a shift in Christian view of social issues. It's not simply permission to embrace messiness and, authentic, and authenticity, authenticity in Christian life. It's not simply a response to doubt, legalism, abuse, or hypocrisy. She's referring in, in the church. It's an entirely different religion with another Jesus and another gospel, end quote. Now, when we post this, this message this morning, I'm going to have a link in there that you can go watch, about a five-minute link of Elisa Childers. Now, let me say this. I am so encouraged. You are here because you are hungry for the Word of God. Calvary Chapel South, the training thing that we're doing with Western Seminary was just an amazing turnout of 50 people that want to be discipled in the word of God. We're hungry for the word. I am so thankful for that. Now, I'm called by God as a pastor teacher. My responsibility to you is to feed you the word of God and care for you. That will not change, nor our staff. That will not change. We are under shepherds to the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and our job first is to feed the sheep. What? The Word of God. But not as I'd like to sort of tailor it to my own opinions, but what does God say in His Word? So as I've said before, and I'm going to amplify it even more. Every time we read the Bible, every time we hear the Word, every time we read, God is speaking. Let's not mess around with it. Let's let God speak. In fact, many times we need to shut up and let God speak. He wants to speak to us. So whether, you, whether you're here or you're online, let me say to you, it is so encouraging to me because I hear a lot of what's going on out in the churches and it's not healthy and it's not good. I'm so thankful for our heritage through my pastor, Chuck Smith, who taught me over and over again, teach the word, preach the word, be faithful to bring the word to the people of God because the word of God, the spirit of God works through the word of God changes the people of God. So I share this to encourage you this morning to know what you believe and why you believe it. And don't take my word for it. Be a good Berean who, as we read in Acts chapter 17, receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to see if the things I'm telling you are true. Do they line up? And I hope if they're not or you feel like they're not, you come and talk to me. First Peter wrote, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There is a hope in us in the scriptures. So some biblical terms. I'm going to run through this. I have a, oh, it's right here. I have these uh, handouts 
So I'm going to run through this quick just for time's sake, but they're right there, the things I'm going to flash up on the screen this morning. So here are some biblical terms defined and centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, pictured through the Bible in types and shadows. You'll see this all the way through. It's all pointing to Jesus. That's why Jesus could say to the disciples in the road to Emmaus, from the law and all the prophets, he began to tell them about himself. Isn't that fantastic? It's relationship. It's knowing the only true God. And Jesus has given to us the word of God to trust it. So what does atonement mean? Here it is. This is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. In fact, a lot of what I'm going to give you. It's the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. That's what atonement is. Do you love it? It's what Jesus did. So Jesus died to meet four needs we have as sinners. Number one, we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. This is the bad news. (laughs) We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. This is the problem we have as sinners. We are separated from God by our sins, and we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So some terms to God answering this. First four, sacrifice is to pay the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins. Christ died, surrendered for our benefit to the cross. Sacrifice. Another term is propitiation which means to remove us from the wrath of God that we deserved. So Christ died as a propitiation or a substitute sacrifice for our sins. He died for us. He didn't need to for himself. Amen. Reconciliation. Now, many of you know this word well. It's probably come up in your family. To overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation and thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. It means to restore relationship. Would you say amen, we have been reconciled? This is what Jesus did for us. All of this on the cross for redemption. Because we, are, because we as sinners are in bondage to sin and Satan... We need someone to regain possession in exchange for payment to purchase us out of bondage by the payment of a ransom to secure our release or to regain possession, redeem. That's what Jesus did for us. He not only created us, but then he bought us, redeemed us, paid the price. Now, I'll add three more just for this study in Joseph and really something that we need to keep in mind as far as what is it that we are to be thinking about in the word? What are the terms that are important? What do we need to understand? Well, one of these that we all know the word very well, it's repentance. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, not just that, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to God. Listen, our repentance costs God. Intercession, Jesus' ongoing act of standing in God's presence and making petition before him on our behalf as our great high priest. He is interceding for us. As I remember my pastor Chuck saying this one time, he was going through Romans 8. He said, how can we lose? How can we lose? He's a sacrifice, substitute sacrifice. He, he did all the work for atonement of us, and then he's praying for us and interceding for us. 
Revival. How many of you heard that word revival? I almost don't like it anymore. Because it has a lot of emotion attached to it, like, woo! As far as I know, in my very small segment of reading about revival, it comes at a brokenness in the church. It comes in understanding that something's happened and we've lost our love for God, lost our love for Jesus. The restoration of the church to a vital and fervent relationship with God after a period of moral decline. Has there been moral decline in the church in America? You better believe it. Or a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a Christ follower. That's my definition. You can take it and do what you want with it. But basically, revival is not this party in that sense. Revival is coming to a deep awareness of our need for God and to change our hearts to walk with him obediently through repentance and understanding that Jesus' work on the cross was not something that was unnecessary. It was completely necessary, and God did that because he loves us. The work of Christ that Christ did atonement in his life and death to earn our salvation. I see it right here in John chapter 17 as Jesus begins his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. He says, he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, and this is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now notice what he says. I have glorified the earth on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. That's what Jesus now is going to complete. Where? The cross. The cross. So we look at these things. We look at the atonement. And listen, it's just too good to be true. And it's true. It's true. And thankfully, it has nothing to do with me except repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not cheap. It's costly. But it's for me a free gift that God gives. But it's not a free gift in the way that, oh, I got this thing and now I can put it under my Christmas. No, it's a gift given to us that absolutely, radically will change our lives. It's as radical as Joseph's brothers going, and, th- and they were dismayed. I'm your brother, I'm your brother, I'm alive. How's my father doing? How's the younger doing? Or Benjamin was there. It's as radical, but that's nothing compared to Jesus. Crucified for all to see, three days dead. And then Mary goes to the tomb, and she's weeping outside the tomb. She looks in, there's two angels. Why are you looking for the, for the, the, the living among the dead? They didn't, be, but here Jesus is alive. And may I say to you, he is risen, and he has ascended, and he's waiting to return. He's waiting to return. So if you want an outline that helps you, here it is. Joseph's intentions, Judah's intercession, and Jacob's revival. And we're going to just read a lot of this. I'll comment a little bit. It says here, and he commanded the steward, verse chapter 44, of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the man 
the, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and were not far, yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from, is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servant should do such a thing. They don't know what Joseph has done. Look, we, bought, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack. Are you getting the picture? The drama unfolding. And so, so he, the, the steward, searched. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's just heightening. No, 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 no. Let, let, and then Benjamin. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And each man loaded his donkey, and they all returned to the city. Listen, the intention was not revenge. It was reconciliation. Joseph had all the authority and power to imprison them, even put them to death. That was not his intention. His intention was reconciliation. His intention was to Bring his brothers to a place where repentance was obvious and reconciliation then possible. Listen, God sees all our guilt and all our shame. God knows exactly who you are and everything you have done. His intention was always reconciliation. You see, Joseph, I think, is seeing something different now in his brothers. Call repentance. Their guilt has finally worn them out. And now God's going to work it out. Guilt is a good thing. Repentance is the doorway to reconciliation. Jesus died on the cross, the substitute sacrifice, the ransom paid that we might be reconciled to him, to God, through repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. God's intention before sin ever entered the world And death through sin was to send a Savior, a Redeemer. His provision for our salvation, our pardon from sin, our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of his glorious Son, into the liberty of the children of God. Jesus said, this is eternal life. You may know God. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's home, house, And he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Just like Joseph, I'm sure he's flashing back to the the dreams he had. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? So what deed is this you have done? Well, listen, Joseph set him up. Oh, this isn't fair. Wait a second. For that specific deed, in a sense, they weren't guilty, but let me say they were Loaded with guilt, as we are. 
It might not be a specific sin. It might not be. But in our hearts, we are sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of the redemption through Jesus Christ, in need of the cross. So Judas said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Now, I want to point out to you, this is repentance. First of all, no more excuses. Or, shall, or how should we clear ourselves? Repentance. Not only no more excuses, no more blaming other people. Notice, God has found out the, the iniquity of your servants. They know that in their minds, it's what they did to Joseph. Listen, repentance also, it's not only no more excuses, no more blaming others, but it's no more hiding. No more hiding. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. And listen, there's no more running. That's repentance. And it's an incredible thing when it happens. No more excuses. No more blaming others. No more hiding. No more running. Verse 17. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your brothers. Now, given the opportunity right now, they could have packed it up and went home and left Benjamin holding the bag or the sack. But they didn't do that. There's no more of that. It's repentance. So, do you recognize it in your own life? It's a glorious, wonderful thing. It's almost too good to be true. And it's true. Repentance is the doorway to, rede- to re- being forgiven by God, reconciled to God. It's the doorway in reconciling our relationships with one another. It's fantastic. It's so powerful that I believe I can say, it's too good to be true what happens in my heart. Does that mean the relationships immediately? No, but in my heart now, I'm in a place where God can begin to move me into areas that I've never experienced in relational problems through repentance. So Joseph's intention was not vengeance. It was repentance. God's intention is not vengeance. It's repentance. Look at what Romans says. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to what? Repentance. It's the goodness of God. Second Peter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the church in Thyatira, there was this woman named Jezebel, And Jesus said, I gave her time to repent, and she did not repent. God gives much time. Would you say he's been long-suffering with you? Indeed, he has. God's provision for our redemption. Now, this is interesting to me. In verse 2, it says, also put my cup, the silver cup. The focus now on this repentance is a cup. And I think of Jesus saying this in Luke chapter 22. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And in that Seder, it was the cup of redemption. Whole new meaning. 
Matthew chapter 26, after this now, Jesus goes to the garden, went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, a second time, verse 42, he went away and prayed saying, oh my father, if, if this cup cannot pass away from me, lest I drink it, your will be done. And he took the cup, the cup at the remembrance of the exodus with that cup of redemption. He took that and gave it a whole new meaning. And then he went out into that garden. His disciples are falling asleep. He's praying in agony about drinking the cup. What? The cup of the cross. The cup that, that gave to us redemption through his blood. So the focus here is the cup. The focus of God's work is the cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of the cross. Throughout Scripture, silver figuratively represents redemption. The tabernacle stood on sockets of silver. The foundation was God's intention to redeem. It was always used as redemption money. Both Joseph and Jesus were sold for silver. Judas was paid off in silver. There was a cost to it. A cost. Silver is, a, is symbolic of the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. So look at what Peter says. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like what? Silver or gold. All God could turn the whole universe into gold at a word. It's useless. It's valueless in that sense. What it required is from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. Ephesians, the pra- to, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted and the beloved. In him we have redemption, how? Through his blood. Notice, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I hope you're encouraged this morning. These are truths that are too good but they're true. They're true. What's your sin meter saying? What's your attitude? All those things. Jesus came to do what was necessary to bring us back to the one who loves us and wants a relationship with us. We have Judas's intercession. Then Judah came to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word. In my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. There's a guy named Dr. Clark that wrote this, and this whole idea, which I've read several times, most commentary, it's almost like you don't even need to say anything, just let the story go. Let it speak. Now, this guy, Clark, took 40 years to write a full Bible commentary. He wrote this quote, No paraphrase can heighten the effect of Judah's address to Joseph. To add would be to diminish its excellence. To attempt to explain would be to obscure its beauties. To clothe the ideas in other language than that of Judah and his translators in our Bible would ruin its energy and destroy its influence. It is perhaps one of the most tender, affecting pieces of natural oratory ever spoken or penned. And we need not wonder to find that when Joseph heard it. He could not refrain himself, but wept aloud. His soul immediately yielded to a speech so tender and so powerful, unquote. So let's just read it, verse 19. 
My Lord asked his servant, saying, now, okay, remember, this is Judah before Joseph interceding, offering himself as a substitute. I just commented on it. I said I wouldn't do that. <laughs> have, you, have you a father or a brother? As we said to my Lord, we have a father, and an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young, his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. And so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told in the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is, with, is not, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. But for we may not see the man's face unless I tell you, I would have written this differently because I, it's like, okay. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in this lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad. To my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please... Are you there? Please. Let your servant remain instead of the lad. And as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Judah vowed to take Benjamin's place and bear forever the blame as a substitute sacrifice for the sake of his father. He's got his father in mind. I thought of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Note, note this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, my father loves me. He's got his father in mind. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes my life it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it in. This command I receive from my Father. As Jesus, the Trinity, is going to the cross, and we'll see this a little more in a moment. So when we read this, we forgive Judah, which means praise. All the past, and cannot refuse to say, as it says in Genesis chapter 49, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall, who shall rouse him? Judah, 
who's interceding here. Then we get to Revelation. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John the apostle said, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, and to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But notice, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. To open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now let me go on. Not done yet. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, I saw what? A lamb as though it had been slain. You got the lion and the lamb. Wow. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God, unto God by your blood by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and may his kings and priests our God and we shall reign on the earth. The lion and the lamb. Can you say praise the Lord? That's the picture. This is what Jesus accomplished for us. Through Judah, the line of Judah, through all that Joseph pictures for us in many of these facets. And so now in chapter 45, we have Jacob's revival. And Joseph could not restrain himself before all those. You see, it's just incredible. Here's Judah interceding, such a change, saying, I'll stay, I'll be your slave, but let the guy go back because my father, it'll kill him. It'll kill him. As as Joseph's watching this, and he's hearing this, knowing what had happened to him by these same men, And hearing such a brokenness and such a repentance, you can't, you ever been in a place like that? You just can't contain it. So everybody out. And I believe he was weeping so hard that it's because it says all the Egyptians heard it. He's howling, if you will. He is so broken in their brokenness. It says, so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known. This is family. This is family. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Notice, but his brothers is kind of, but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. They go, what, what, what? I don't know what he looked like, but obviously they didn't recognize him physically. He was talking up to this point through a translator. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What a perspective. Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. 
For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to reserve a posterity for you in the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it is not you who sent me here, but God. He repeats it. God, this is God allowed this. God allowed this. God allowed this. Now they're still dismayed. They're wondering, what's going to happen? Is there vengeance in his heart? No. Revenge? No. It's reconciliation. So now it is not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. This is what God did. They're seeing him in glory. Not been an easy 20 years for Joseph. Know that. But now he can look back and see the glory of God in all that happened. Joseph's brothers see him alive. They see him reigning. We, the redeemed, will see Jesus in glory. Can you say amen? I love what Johnny said last week. We're going to walk through the walls in New Jerusalem. I mean, it's a real deal. We are going to see him in glory. We will see him in glory as the raptured, redeemed, awaiting his return to earth. We will see him in glory as we accompany him in that return. We will see him conquer all his enemies. We will see him in his kingdom for a thousand years on earth, and we will see him throughout all eternity glorified. You know, Zechariah prophesied of a time when Israel will repent. They'll realize what happened, and they'll repent during those, in those last days when Jesus returns. Notice what Zechariah said. It's incredible. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That's repentance. And grieve for him as one grieves for They're going to realize what they did to God's son and how that works together with God's sovereign plan. It's not something we'll ever figure out. But they were responsible, and they'll realize it. Zechariah chapter 13, some will say to me, what are, the, what are these wounds in your hands? He will answer these, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. These things are true. These days are coming. And so you know what I say? Could you please hurry up? And that's exactly what happens. Genesis 45, verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. I'm going to take care of you completely. Then I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eye and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. He's speaking in their language. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you, here it is again, you shall hurry and bring my father down. In other words, he just wants to see his dad. 
20 years in the making. Wonder if he'd ever see him. Wonder if he's dead. He said, would you hurry up and get him? <laughs> Bring him down? And you can see in Joseph's mind, he says, I wonder what my, what, how my, I'd love to have, he would have loved to have seen it. So it's like, tell him to come down like right now. How many of you would say, would you come, Jesus? <laughs> would you like hurry up? Would you get it over? Now I find it interesting, and we're, we're yeah, in John chapter 17, again, this high priestly prayer, you gotta read it. But as you read it, you begin to understand that we are being invited into this trinity of love. That's what Jesus was praying. But he knew he was leaving. And so in John chapter 17, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's going back. I have manifest your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They are yours. Then he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and I am glory. So he's interceding for them. He's praying for them because he knows he's leaving. John 11, 17, 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me that they may be one as we are one. Oh, how we need that prayer to continue going. That they may be one. Understand the unity that we have. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's praying for them. He's interceding. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. Now notice what the glory is. You have loved me from the foundation of the world. We're being invited in the eternal love of God. That's what he's praying for. And that day is coming. So verse chapter 45 again. He fell on his brothers Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers, wept over them after his brothers had talked with him. So he weeps all the It's like he's, I'm sure a lot, hey, we got a lot to catch up on here. But we're reconciled. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 17. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I'll give you the best of the land. So this is Pharaoh. I'm going to take care of you. Because they loved Joseph. He had saved them as a nation. They loved Joseph. Then the sons, verse 21 of Israel, did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the covenant command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, chains of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five chains of garments. And he sent to, it, he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread. So Pharaoh's loading them up. And when they get back, that's the evidence. Not only had they heard him speaking there, but the evidence, now look at the carts, notice. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Joseph their father. And they told him saying, Joseph is still alive and he is governor over the land of Egypt. And jo Jacob's heart stood still, you can only imagine. It stood still, it like stopped a second, not too long because he still lived. Because he didn't believe them. Now is that intimating that they were liars? Probably. 
But I think more so he didn't believe it because it was too good to be true. Are you kidding? But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Revival happened in the life because of Joseph's, because Joseph is alive. And brothers and sisters, I would say my application for me personally and for us, Jesus is alive, there should be a revival. And just meditating on the resurrection too good to be true. Jesus is alive. All the words that Jesus told us are true. If we'll look at the carts, the evidence, the boatload of evidence, Jesus is alive. That God of the Bible has given us concrete, rational answers for the questions of life. Who am I? You're precious in the sight of God, created in his image. Where did I come from? You were knit together in your mother's womb by God. Why am I here? Because God created you for a purpose in serving him. What's my purpose in life? What happens when I die? It's all answered. There's a boatload of evidence. There's the words that we have, God's word. And it declares that Jesus is the son of God, creator and savior of the world. That Jesus died to meet the need we had as sinners. That Jesus finished the work of atonement. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to my, my father except by me. He made it very, very exclusive and simple. And so is that true? If you don't know that answer this, this morning, I would say you better go and find out before you die. That's how important it is. God's not trying to hold it back. God sent Jesus' son to be the sacrifice, propitiation, reconciler, the the one who redeemed us, that we might turn to him in repentance and faith and be saved, rescued from the wages of sin, the finality of death and the torment, listen, of hell. That's the Bible. That's Jesus' own words. It's too good to be true, but and it's true. Through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the penalty of sin has been fully paid. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied and our separation from God has ended. I love what Max Lucado wrote. My life is not futile. My failures are not fatal. And my death is not final. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. And I pray and ask in Jesus' name, that as the truth has been so clearly given to us in every word, every sentence, every chapter of your word, that you would help us to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name that you'd please draw us to yourself. Revive us, O Lord, according to your word. Revive us, Lord, in areas where we've got stagnant, we've gotten cold, we've gotten hard-hearted. Please, Lord, draw us to Jesus and to the cross where we find there redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness. At the cross, at the cross, we love you, Lord. Would you stand with me as Sophia closed in the song? So, Lord, we love you. We stand before you completing completing Christ and we would just bow our, our prayers before you and say Lord if there's anyone listening here online maybe another time 
if they don't know you, that you, Lord, would draw them to yourself and that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.